0: Good morning, everyone. Let me read from Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 12, a story that's so important, it's recorded for us in all four Gospels. It's what Jesus did after his donkey ride into Jerusalem on the day we now call Palm Sunday. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 through 17. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned their tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. And also one verse from Isaiah 61, the chapter that we have been using as our focus for the whole season of Lent. A hope-filled chapter about what God's Messiah will do and what the kingdom of God is all about. Isaiah 61, verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Amen. Thanks be to God. Well, the machinery of his murder was already in motion. Jesus had repeatedly been warned about coming to Jerusalem, the city's powerful priests and politicians and Pharisees. They were at the epicenter of this conspiracy against him. Jesus knew it was a snake pit. He'd already labeled them as serpents, a brood of vipers. So their hostility was not a surprise. He knew what, was, what he was walking into. And so in coming to Jerusalem, Jesus did something very unusual, very out of character. He came into the city in the most public way possible, in the festive, spontaneous parade of celebration, of waving palms and shouts of Hosanna, save us. That, you know, wasn't like Jesus. Normally, he kind of shunned the spotlight. Normally, he, he did his best work out in the countryside, in the small villages or along the Sea of Galilee, but away from the power brokers and the religious elites in Jerusalem. This entrance into the urban center of Israel, and then right into the great temple, which was the epicenter of Israel's religious life, it was a conscious, in-your-face confrontation, and it was a violent action of aggressive anger on the part of Jesus. The storming of the temple occurred during the week of Passover feast, when the Israelites remembered their great deliverance from slavery in Egypt, The Passover reminded the Jews of their hundreds of years of slavery, that God had finally responded to their cries for mercy and justice and freedom. God sent Moses as their deliverer. Through God's power, Moses had this epic back-and-forth confrontation with Pharaoh, you know, with plagues and all kinds of unpleasantries. Until finally, Pharaoh relents and okays their release, and then there was this mad scramble by the Israelites to get out of town before Pharaoh changed his mind again. They had to go so fast they didn't even have time to bake bread the normal way with yeast. And during their Passover meal, that flat bread, that unleavened bread, it became a symbol of the evil and the injustice that they had suffered and also a reminder of God's holiness and his opposition to evil. And so that very week, every Jewish household spent the day before Passover feast meticulously cleaning their home, going through their house top to bottom, to sweep out any kind of yeast, or any substance that would cause fermentation. And so they cleansed every corner of their home. That symbolic cleanliness or holiness was an absolute necessity in order to properly celebrate the Passover. Yet in a city that was given over to the cleansing of every house, when Jesus came into the temple, the house of God, he found it was a filthy mess. Not because it was filled with clutter and noise and animals of all kinds but because the money changers and the merchants were using the holiday to blatantly rip people off and enrich themselves. You see, once a year, every Jewish male had to go to the temple and pay a temple tax. There was no escape. Every male Jew was required to pay a half-shekel tax at the Passover season. And that tax could not be paid in regular Greek or Roman coins. It had to be paid in a special temple coin. So people had to change their Roman or Greek coins that they commonly used into the special temple tax coin. And that was fine in itself. Money changers were required for that. Having them available for the people was a convenience and that was okay. But what was wrong was the exorbitant price being extorted for making this exchange. The money changers charged a fee that was almost as much as half the value of the money being exchanged. I mean it was a total Rip off, and what's worse, the temple leaders got a big kickback for the money changers for letting it happen. During the Passover season, sometimes as many as two million people were in the city of Jerusalem. That's a lot of shekels. So there was a tremendous racket going on here. And on top of that, temple sacrifices had to be offered at the Passover season, and the animal use had to be without blemish or imperfection. If an animal was blind in one eye, if had a scar on the skin, or the coloring wasn't quite right, right, the animal was rejected. That was the law of the Old Testament. So people knew, bring your best. But the way this con worked was when someone brought an animal of his own to offer, it had to be examined by the priest to make sure it was okay. And then the priest would almost certainly reject the animal. they find something wrong with it. This meant that the only animals that were acceptable, well, they had to be purchased from the temple herd that was kept in the court of the Gentiles. These animals had already been pre-approved by the priest, but again, at tremendously inflated prices. For example, historians tell us that a bird could be bought outside the temple for like the equivalent of 15 cents in today's money. But that same bird bought inside the temple from authorized purveyors of animals would cost as much as $15. I mean, that's like buying a hot dog for 20 bucks at a Giants game. It was pure criminal extortion, and that was what aroused this flaming anger of Jesus against these swindlers and schemers. So great was his anger that the Gospel of John tells us he made a whip out of cords, the cords that held the animals together, and he drove these uh, uh, extortioners out of the temple. Now think about that for a moment. Jesus swinging a whip, Indiana Jones style. Jesus hitting people with a whip. Jesus, a one-man riot, flipping over tables, literally putting the fear of God into these scammers. Does that fit into your mental picture of who Jesus is? Or is your mental picture more like the old Sunday school portraits of, you know, this pale, weakly-looking Jesus, meekly holding a little lamb? Do not diminish or minimize the anger and the violence with Jesus manifested at this time. This is a different Jesus than many people imagine him to be. Oftentimes we think of him, he's just loving and understanding, lets us do, get away with everything, sees our evil, but he puts his hand on our shoulder, It's it's all right, don't worry about it. Many people think of Jesus that way, but this is Jesus expressing the judgment of God. Yeah, that's a real thing. The judgment of God. And in his righteous anger, Jesus drove these people out of the temple. Now, it's important to see that his anger was under control. The Greek word used in the John version of the story describes Jesus as weaving the whip together. He didn't just fly off the handle. This was a calculated, controlled action. He wasn't a raging lunatic furiously, you know, striking out at anybody and everybody around him. It was a controlled anger. And as he weaves the whip, we can almost hear him saying, my father's house is a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a flea market. And we will see that same anger when Jesus comes again to judge the world. And at that time, some will hear his terrifying words, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, Where does this anger come from in Jesus? It comes from his own divine nature as the second person of the Trinity from his divine appointment as the Son of God, as God's Messiah, God's Deliverer. It comes from God's own holiness. So let's do a little Theology 101, okay? God is supreme being, right? I mean, that's the very definition of a monotheistic God, supreme. Overall, no competitors, rivals, equals, not even close. Creator and sustainer of all things, visible, invisible, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipresent, omniscient, all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. And so because God is supreme, because God is the one who created all things, God sets the rules for his creation. There's no debating, no voting, no focus groups. God defines what is good based on his own nature, his own will, his own design. What is in harmony with his nature and his will and his design, that's what is good. Everything that reflects God's own nature and purpose and being, that's what good is. Everything that is contrary to God's nature, God's will, God's design, it's called evil. Everything anti-God is evil, incompatible with God's kingdom. It will have no place in his eternity. It cannot because God's eternal kingdom would, 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 would then not be a reflection of God's perfect nature. It would be imperfect and flawed and tainted. Now, we live in a world that has rebelled against God's nature, God's will, and God's design. A world that has rebelled against God's holiness... And this rebellion, both individually and collectively, the Bible calls that sin. And God hates it when he sees sin. I mean, he hates it for how it goes against his own nature. But he also hates it because of the damage this evil does to God's children. The misery, the pain, the anguish, the evil that it causes his children, the heartache, the grief, the anxiety. Every day God sees the damage done. Every day, and he hates the pain that our rebellion brings upon us. As a world, we're reaping what we've sown, and God hates to see us suffer and see the suffering that we then inflict on each other, whether it's through the kind of extortion we see in this morning scripture or through the million other ways we do damage to ourselves, to each other, and to our planet. The overarching word to describe this desire from God for his world to work right, for the world to work the way it was supposed to, for life to operate According to God's nature, God's will, God's design, that word in scripture is justice. Justice, biblical justice, not exactly the same as the secular use of the world. Biblical justice is the setting of things right, setting things in order and in harmony with the holiness of God so that things would reflect the very nature and character of God. God's desire for justice is seen throughout Scripture. From the psalm, Psalm 33, 5, The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Psalm 50, The heavens (coughs) proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Psalm 89, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. In scripture, God's sense of justice gets down to specifics. It is reflected in the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. I mean, read Exodus 23, for example. Lying, false testimony, favoritism in the courts, either for or against the poor person. Stealing, unfair criminal sentencing, bribery, the oppression of foreigners. All those things that offend God, all those are things that offend God and go against God's justice. There are hundreds of verses in the Bible about how justice is an expression of of the very nature and character of God. And how about our verse today from Isaiah 61? For I, the Lord, I love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Maybe Jesus had that verse in mind as he went off the people who were robbing the Passover worshipers. That verse from Isaiah tells us that justice is a part of God's covenant love, his love for his people. That means by putting This into the law of Israel, God wants his people to reflect God's own holiness and goodness in society. God wants his people to pursue justice in their dealings with others because that's who God is. That's God's character, the the character of the God that they worship. If you say you worship God, then you have to be a person who pursues his kingdom sense of justice in this world. And that means It's okay to share Jesus' anger when you see situations of injustice in our world. Now, we don't often identify with the anger of Jesus. We like those other emotions, love, mercy, kindness, patience, compassion. But if being a Christian means becoming more and more like Jesus through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, then one growth area for you and me might be how to get in touch with the righteous anger of Jesus. And I say righteous anger. It's easy to get angry. Anybody can be angry. That takes no skill or finesse whatsoever. Lots of people people with very destructive anger issues. But to be angry about the right things at the right time and the right degree and the right way, that takes some serious Holy Spirit intervention. I mean, there are so many things going going on around us every day that are contrary to the holiness of God. So many ways people act or treat each other whether it's in personal behavior, economic greed, sexual exploration, exploitation, so many things that offend the holiness of God, and we don't even bat an eye to them anymore. I mean, it's just become part of the background noise because human depravity is, is just everywhere. It's the ocean we swim in. But every once in a while, we're confronted with the terrible injustices of our world and we wake up, maybe because something hits close to home and we feel it more. And for many of these unjust situations, anger is the godly response. Anger is the godly response. Just take the last couple of weeks. We should feel anger when we see people of the Asian community being targeted with violence and hatred. We should all be offended by that and stand against that because it's wrong and does not reflect the kind of world our God of holiness desires. We should feel anger when 10 innocent people are murdered in a grocery store. That's just wrong, not just on a human level, that grieves the holiness of God. We should be angry when so far this year, 620 people have been shot in the city of Chicago alone. That's not the world God wants, and it should offend us. But here's the thing. Your anger as a Christian at injustice has to be tempered by the Holy Spirit. Because otherwise, you'll just be angry all the time. If you don't have the Holy Spirit in control of your emotional response, you'll just be angry all the time because there are just so many unjust situations in our world. I did a quick perusal of one day's issue of the Wall Street Journal recently just to see what justice issues they reported on that Christians ought to be concerned about. The violence and hatred against Asians and the shootings in Colorado that I already mentioned. The exploitation and trafficking of Asian women in this massage parlor industry, often by other Asians. Anti-Semitism and racist behavior in a Massachusetts high school football team. uh, Genocide and ongoing persecutions against the Rohingya people by the Myanmar, the Burmese government. A terrible fire in one of their refugee camps that killed many this week. Ethnic cleansing against the Karen people, also by the Burmese government. Uh, continuous civilian casualties in the civil war in Yemen, a malnutrition crisis in the African country of Mali brought about by groups that use food as a weapon, more girls kidnapped from their schools in Nigeria and held for ransom by Islamic fundamentalist group Boko Haram, sexual misconduct, sexual assault, and all the cover-ups that seem to inevitably follow, Uh, the line-of-duty death of a firefighter responding to a call, the mistreatment of the Kurdish people in Iraq and Iran and Turkey. The growing border crisis uh, along our southern border. Children being trafficked into the United States by Mexican drug cartels. Persecution of Christians in Pakistan. The 545,000 COVID-related deaths in the U.S. and the 2.7 million seven uh, million dollar deaths deaths—million were one. These things should offend us and our sense of justice if our hearts are aligned with the Lord. There's so much we could be angry about, and that's just one section of one newspaper for one day. We can't possibly care about them all. We should share Jesus' righteous anger when we see injustice, but there's no way we can carry that kind of load. We don't have that kind of capacity. Our anger circuits would just overload. We can't shoulder the weight of the whole world's sin. We can't possibly care about all of these injustices with equal fervor Because evil is everywhere. Evil permeates our world. Even if we fix one problem, evil pops up somewhere else. It's like a spiritual whack-a-mole. You hit this problem and then it just pops up again over here. You keep whacking away and then you have to start over again with each new generation. That's the danger of becoming a Christian justice warrior, a social justice warrior. They're just angry all the time because we can't possibly fix the world in all respects. We can't create an earthly utopia. We can't go back to Eden. We can't bring about the kingdom of God by our own efforts. It's foolish and bad theology to think we can. Historically the danger for Christian justice warriors is that they eventually become so frustrated, so angry that they just give up on the church or even give up on God because the world is not getting fixed according to their timetable. And some social justice warriors, out of their frustration, they turn and they begin to resort to evil to try and fix evil. The solution for handling bigotry or uh, ideas they disagree with becomes suppressing free speech. The cancel culture is an expression of this frustration, trying to destroy people who don't fall into line with preconceived perceptions of what is right or wrong. No disagreement, no dissent allowed. Historically, then, the frustrated justice warriors become the oppressors, And then they become the very evil they say they oppress. Our anger at injustice has to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And we simply cannot bring the same level of concern to all the issues out there. So please, remember, we all have selective outrage over the injustices of the world. We all have selective outrage over the injustices of the world based on what is most important to us personally. So don't get mad at people if they don't automatically share the same level of interest or outrage on any particular issue. What may be God's calling on your life to get involved to make a difference may not be someone else's calling. Their plate may be full with other things. And when God stirs up in you an issue of injustice, you can and you should do your uppermost to address that issue as an expression of your love for God, for his holiness, and for his children. Now make sure the issue matches up with scripture, with God's nature, God's will, and God's design, and then pray about what God would have you do and how you might make a positive difference. In Isaiah, God said he loves justice and that justice is part of his everlasting covenant with his people. God makes covenants throughout scripture. A biblical covenant is a type of agreement usually outlines both blessings and curses and we see the covenant of creation the covenant with Noah with Abraham with Moses with David and then when Jesus came he said that during Holy Week in that upper room Passover meal that he was bringing a new covenant and that communion celebration baptism those would be the signs of this new covenant the secret of this new covenant is that it would bring together God's anger and God's mercy God's justice and God's forgiveness, because that's the only lasting solution to the sin problem that afflicts our world. That's what the people of Jerusalem were hoping for when they shouted, Hosanna to Jesus. Hosanna means save us. And that's what they knew the Messiah was supposed to do. This new covenant answers the question, how can God be both just or loving? If God is loving and holy, how can he judge people and condemn sin? If God is just, then how can he forgive? These questions meet in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one who is able to satisfy both God's love and God's justice. The two are not contradictory principles, as some may assume. They actually work together. For example, for a long time people said, you know, human beings will never be able to fly because it defies the laws of gravity. The downward pull of gravity is too strong. But if you combine the downward pull of gravity with the upward lift of air pressure, you can have flight. The secret is in the design of the wing. The bottom of the airplane wing is flat, the top of the wing is curved. As the airplane moves forward, the air passing over the top of the wing has to travel a further difference than the the air going under the wing. This produces a vacuum at the top of the wing. Nature abhors a vacuum. So nature exerts pressure and the wing lifts to fill it. Flight is possible because those two principles work together. Forgiveness is possible because the principle of justice and mercy they meet in Jesus. The cross is like the wing of the airplane. The cross deals with both the penalty of human sin and the mercy of God himself because Christ takes the punishment we deserve upon himself. God's anger at injustice and God's love towards those who are unjust, they they meet perfectly, they intersect at the cross. And this touches on one of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith. Throughout the Gospels, we see plainly how anyone can come to Christ, no matter what their background, no matter how far off they've gone, how how wrong they are, no matter what evil they have been, murderers and prostitutes, swindlers, liars, perverts, drunkards, self-righteous, bitter, hard-hearted cynics, hypocrites, the proud, the self-sufficient, the snobs, anyone who realizes that there's something wrong in his or her life, that something has Seize them, grip them, has introduced evil, hurt, and pain, and heartache. Anyone who wants to be free can come to Jesus. Come to me, all you are weary and weighed down by life's heavy burdens, and I will give you rest, Jesus said Matthew 11. Anyone can come. In watching Jesus clear the temple, I believe the disciples saw something new. They understood, perhaps for the very first time, that if you come to Jesus, He is not playing around. You can be assured that if you come to him, Jesus is not going to leave you the way you are. The justice and mercy of Christ tells us that God loves us just the way we are, and he loves us too much to let us stay that way. Jesus is coming at your life with a crowbar. He's looking for a change of heart. He's looking for repentance that leads to new life. And he's looking for people who can join him in facing the injustices of our world by being angry at the right time, in the right way, to the right degree, and for the right reasons. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this very different picture of who you are, but it helps us to understand better the full nature of God, that you are holy, that you are righteous, And that you do feel anger when we see the way sin damages your world and damages your children lord help us to surrender our anger to you our righteous indignation is often not so righteous help us to know what to be angry about and then how to express that anger in a way that will be positive and will be good for your kingdom lord watch over us this week. Help us to have our eyes open to see situations of injustice, Lord. Help us to know when we need to intervene and what we need to do so that we too might reflect the mercy and the justice of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.